I feel that one word sums up a good advocate is empathy. My word is intentional. It's connection and community. Community in action. I choose strength because the strength in your voice gives others strength to use theirs. My word is authentic. My word is fulfilling. Welcome to the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. Hello friends, my name is Abigail Johnston and I have been living with stage 4 metastatic breast cancer since 2017. I'm not a regular producer on this podcast, but when Victoria asked me to help with this topic, I couldn't say no. While I was trained as an advocate before my diagnosis, finding my way to take that training and applying it to this new and complicated experience with terminal cancer has given me a sense of purpose that often helps to redeem the struggle. During the taping of this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with a group of people who have found their purpose in the midst of adversity. You just heard their voices sharing a word that describes their advocacy. These men and women have taken the worst thing that has ever happened to them or their loved one, a cancer diagnosis, and turned that darkness into a shining light for others to follow. This episode was also born from additional pain, not just the diagnosis, but feeling left out of advocacy. It is my fondest hope that after you listen today, you might find a path towards your purpose towards helping others find their purpose, and perhaps a new energy and focus towards defining purpose in the midst of adversity. Purpose is the word that defines advocacy in my mind. I invite you to listen with me. My name is Stephanie Walker. I live in North Carolina. I have been living with metastatic breast cancer since 2015. It was my first and only diagnosis. And nurse by trade, RN, 40 years, 40 years. The last 14 were spent in end-of-life care. I led my life almost, I'm not going to say with my head in the hole in the ground, but I didn't know anything about advocacy or the NBC world or community until three years after my diagnosis, when complications arose that I had to stop work and find method for insurance. That's how I ended up in the advocacy world. Next, we will hear from Janice Cowden. She's also a nurse, and she's calling in from Florida. Hi, Abigail. Thank you for inviting me here today. As far as my demographics, I am a 65-year-old white woman who is married and has two adult children, three grandchildren. My background as far as career is that I was a pediatric nurse for about 20 years, and then I spent a few years doing pharmaceutical sales. So basically, healthcare and science are my background. I didn't have any experience really in adult medicine, and definitely not in oncology. So this was all very new for me. 
I was diagnosed early stage breast cancer 11 and a half years ago. I had a metastatic recurrence six and a half years ago and no family history of breast cancer. And so I knew as much about breast cancer as basically what the average person walking down the street does when I was diagnosed. When I was diagnosed metastatic in 2016, I knew that this was something that would have a completely different outcome than what early stage was. I thought, what am I going to do with this time? I've been given a gift of time. So what do I do with it? And that's really when I launched into advocacy was about nine, 10 months after my stage four diagnosis. Thank you, Janice. And we'll talk more about your entree into advocacy in a minute. Rod, can we come over to you for an introduction? Hi, everybody. And thanks very much, Abigail. It's always good to see you. And this is a really good topic. And I feel very pleased that I could be here as a guy. I'm a white guy from Australia, age 72. I was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer, stage 3B, in 2014. Two years later, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. I've been treated for both, and currently there's no evidence of either disease, which is great by me. But I think advocacy was something that I just dropped into. And when I couldn't find anyone to talk to, I had to seek information. And it was nine years ago. It was a lonely time then for men. And I'm really pleased to think that I might have contributed to getting information out there that it's a genderless disease and we all should be on board. There's no race, there's no gender, there's no class. It's just everybody. Wonderful. Thank you, Rod. All right, Amy, if we can come over to you for an introduction. Thank you so much for including me. I am a 44-year-old white lady from Ohio, currently living in Ohio. I was diagnosed stage 1A in 2017, and then I had a metastatic recurrence in October of 2020. I've worked in academia for most of my life as a biology professor, microbiologist by training, and I love teaching. Thank you, Amy. All right, Rosemary, you'd like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Rosemary Carrera. I am Cuban, 45 years old. I was diagnosed with breast cancer after my first screening mammogram at the age of 40. No symptoms, and at that point I was at stage two. For me, advocacy has been heavily influenced by actually Abigail and learning from her because after I was diagnosed, I founded a, an organization that provides direct services for women that are going through any kind of cancer treatment locally. And I really didn't understand what it meant to have metastatic breast cancer. And I can tell you that no one really explained to me what it meant to have metastatic breast cancer or the possibility of it becoming metastatic later on and having a recurrence. I learned a lot from her and found myself advocating primarily for Hispanic women who don't speak English and don't know how to ask the correct questions of their doctors or are uncomfortable asking certain questions. And I'm very grateful to be in that position. It was not anything I ever imagined myself doing as I'm an optometrist and this is not quite my wheelhouse, but I really enjoy doing it. And it's really amazing to see how you can empower someone just by giving them three questions to ask their doctor and the reaction that they receive from the doctor as they ask those questions are like, oh, okay, you know about this more than maybe I gave you credit for, or you're out there looking for answers to certain questions. So it's really exciting to see. Thank you, Rosemary. I wanted to include somebody in this discussion who has done a big thing, right? Started a whole nonprofit and is managing something big. But thank you, Rosemary, for the reminder that advocacy can be as simple as 
hey, why don't you ask your doctor this thing? Such a great reminder. All right, Leslie, over to you. Thank you for inviting me. So I am currently a 57-year-old, been living with metastatic breast cancer since November of 2012, so just a little over 10 years. I've always been an advocate. Every single job that I did, even before cancer, was basically advocacy-oriented. I taught Head Start Preschool for many years, which was with the very low-income community in Riverside, California, and then started up my own nonprofit and moved to therapeutic art serving the prison systems in Southern California. And being an advocate for those that normally do not have a voice is just something very natural to me. So when I was diagnosed, I knew eventually that I would want to do something in the advocacy space. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And so it took a little while to get to where I am now. But yeah, it started small. And just from there, meeting new people and networking, and then finally to a place of feeling where I am in my zone now. This is what I was meant to do as far as whether it's fundraising or policy or research or science. Mine is all about quality of life and supportive care. Thank you, Leslie. All right, Miranda, last but not least, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. First, I just want to say thank you for including me in this. I'm so honored to be with all of you. I know quite a few of you from different areas. And so it's I'm a little kind of fangirling right now. So it's like super exciting. But my name is Miranda Gonzalez. I am 47. I was a stay-at-home mom for about 15 years. I have five children. I was diagnosed in 2016 with stage three breast cancer. I have a lot of friends who are metastatic and it has just become something that is really important to me to educate early stage breast cancer patients on risk factors and that nothing is ever done as we all know in this community and just to be aware and not to bury our heads in the sand because that doesn't do any good for anyone. Now I work for SHARE as part of the RMBC Life podcast after being a volunteer. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you all for introducing yourselves. I'd like to move into how each of you got your start in advocacy. Like, what was the first thing that you say, that's where my advocacy began, and what you would have done differently? Stephanie, you are next to me, so you are first, my friend. First of all, I sound different than what I am. I am a Black female. I am a grandma, and I just turned 64 in December. After I had that eye-opening experience at LBBC, I called it my coming out party. I'm sure I learned a lot. I did not comprehend much. I met many people and remembered every name. And not only was that important for me, it was important that I seen a whole bunch of people that looked like Stephanie. Black features, that was spot on for me. Even though on the flip side of that was that I was older than most. I didn't grasp advocacy then either. I just thought it was okay. But I met a lot of people, as I said. And one of the people that I met there was a lady that's no longer with us, Catherine O'Brien, said, would you do an interview for me? And I'm thinking, sure, whatever. And it was with Yahoo Life. So after that first one, I was hooked. 
And the reason I say I was hooked is because I wanted people to know that I was older, I had metastatic breast cancer, and I was doing well. And not only that part, I wanted to bring it to places that I knew needed this. And that was in my new community that we had just moved back to North Carolina from Louisiana. So I knew I needed to make that impact there. What would I have done different? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I threw myself into advocacy in every manner I could. If you ask, I said yes. If you said go, I went. If you said come, I came. It, it was that is how hungry for something I wanted to do. I went and I did. Now I think I would take a different avenue and just kind of get my toes in the water instead of doing a body slam in the pool. I like that imagery, Stephanie, about dipping your toes into different things. Janice, over to you. What was your start into advocacy? And in hindsight, what would you have done differently? When I was diagnosed early stage breast cancer, I used a lot of organizational resources just to learn about breast cancer. I used other types of resources, medical journals and things like that. But Living Beyond Breast Cancer was one of the organizations that I found just a lot of general resources on their website. So when I was diagnosed metastatic in 2016, I went back to their website just to look for some more resources. I happened to see that they had a metastatic breast cancer conference. And I saw that they also had an advocacy training program called Hear My Voice. And I thought, I don't know anything about advocacy. And what do I have to lose? I'm going to apply for this program. I'm going to register for this conference and I'm going to go because I hadn't met anyone with metastatic breast cancer at that point. So I thought, why not? I'll do this. I went to the conference, walked into this room. I must have seen somewhere around 200, 300 people in this room. And I started talking to people, meeting people. And then I met everyone in my Hear My Voice class. And I was just amazed. I learned so much. I was 58 at the time. And I met people in my class who were in their 20s, in their 30s. There were a couple of people that were older than me. And there was a man. And I didn't know what he was doing there. And I found out that he had metastatic breast cancer. And I was like, wait, men get breast cancer? I had no idea. And so he, Kirby, and I formed an immediate friendship. Everybody's friends with him anyway. But I think what that first year after I did hear my voice, I didn't know what kind of advocacy I wanted to do. I was trying to figure out which box I fit into. And so I started looking around at how I might do some advocacy work in my local community. And I had a meeting with the local director of the Making Strides for Breast Cancer here at American Cancer Society, our local chapter. And we had everything set up. I was going to go have a booth and do, present all of these LBBC things there. And then a roadblock came up and I was told literally within days before the event that I would not be allowed to have my booth because we couldn't have outside materials. So that was my first roadblock. And I had no idea. I thought after that, I thought, well, I'm a failure. I'm not doing, because that was my project that I was going to do as we had to list a project for Hear My Voice as to what was going to be our first advocacy project. I thought I failed on project number one. Maybe I should just stop doing this and not look back. But what happened then is I learned that there were NBC support groups on social media. I joined some of those. 
I stayed in contact with some of the members of my Hear My Voice class, and that opened doors. And I had no idea what kind of doors it would open. I learned the power of my voice, which is interesting because the Hear My Voice is the name of the advocacy program. And I learned that my voice was really important. And it didn't matter that maybe my first project didn't work out like I had anticipated or hoped that it would. What I found was really the most amazing thing about all of that was the connections. And I found that simply meeting people who are in the same space, who are living with this disease, people who are reaching out and doing big things, because I don't do anything big. I'm just that little helper that comes along and says, okay, I'll be involved in this and that. But I'm not going, I'm never going to start my own nonprofit. I'm never going to do anything big like that. But I found that you can do advocacy in many different ways. You don't have to put yourself in a box. You don't have to do just one type of advocacy, but we all have our passions. And as far as doing anything different, I'm just like Stephanie. In fact, I'm not stealing your words, Stephanie, but I thought the exact same thing when I thought about this earlier. I wouldn't do anything different because there have been a lot of stumbling blocks, but a lot of great things that have happened along the way. And I'm just glad that I took that first step and got myself into advocacy in 2017. Thank you, Janice. All right, Rod, over to you. What was your first entree into advocacy and what would you have done differently? I'd have to invent the field a bit. And as I started using some of my media skills, I thought I'd need some medical education. So I just started the local hospital in the infusion room talking to people and basically ended up with a lot of contacts, which I leveraged through social media. As that was coming on stronger, I was very fortunate to connect with so many people and eventually to get to Project Lead and to other seminars, medical seminars in Australia. And I soon found a space for myself. And then I started really concentrating on helping men who, I have to tell you, are so loath to come out with this. It's not a disease anybody wants to have because they think it's a woman's disease. It's breast cancer. So what? Men have got breasts. So I tell them all this and I've got novelty value when I'm in the media and I'm in the media a lot. It's a pretty easy gig for me, but I found initially not to waste time with groups that weren't you or weren't being helpful to you, people who are being negative, people who want to make fun of you, whatever. And I think you build your reputation. We all do. We, we build based on our skills and based on the empathy we have for others. I think we soon get our reputations and that's invaluable. And I just find even now the things that I did then all built up and built up and I had support from a lot of strong women, a lot of mentors. And along the way, I learned that your friends die from this as well. I've had some very good friends and one I'll name, Rob Fincher. He and I put together a male breast cancer manifesto. We thought, we've got to have some political action. If you're not having a manifesto, you're not really in politics. So we developed that and we put that around. We started to get attention. Unfortunately, Rob died a few years ago, but there's other men that have come in and are taking that on. And I'm now president of the Male Breast Cancer Global Alliance, the board of directors. And I'm in institutions, but I'm like a freelancer and I find I'm more effective. I write a lot of articles and do podcasts and other things. And I think just getting into the zone, I'm comfortable now. I don't think I could have done anything different. I didn't really do much wrong. At least I say that. Other people say you're probably just living, you've done something wrong. 
But yeah, no, I think it's all good. And the barriers, there's no real barriers for me. I'm comfortable in what I do and thankful for meeting all people like we, we've got here today on this podcast. Thank you, Rod. I love how you say you created your own niche and there wasn't really anything out there specific that made sense. And so you did your own thing. I think that's a great example for other people as well. Thank you. Amy, you are up. What do you consider your entree into advocacy and what would you have done different, if anything? Yeah, I think there were two major things that got me into advocacy. So I was not active after my stage one diagnosis, but while I was in the infusion room for Zometa infusion, there was a lady next to me who was upset and she was having a hard time. This was clearly her first treatment. And so I asked the nurse if I could just sit with her. I'm like, can I just talk with her? Do you think that'd be helpful? And she said, yeah. And I, and I talked, she was, she didn't know what was going on and it was rough and she was just getting pre-meds. And this is definitely no ding on nurses. Nurses are amazing. My mother was a nurse. I love you, Stephanie and Janice. I know things happen. Anyway, moral of the story is she almost pulled the woman's IV before she actually had the chemo. She was just being pre-medded. And I said, I'm like, I don't think she's done. And anyway, and that to me didn't seem very big. It was a small thing. When I sat with her and chatted and learned about her life, it turned out that it was because it was, it felt like I made a small difference. And the next big thing was when, and this was not a great experience. It was with a walk, a breast cancer walk. And I actually went and met up with another person who I found on a social site, Facebook site. And we're like, oh, we're in the same place. Let's meet up. And we both had a difficult experience with the survivorship tent. Sure, you can imagine. And we teamed up and have through MetaViber, the peer to peer support group has been an important thing. So those really helped. And then learning about stuff, attending seminars all virtually. So I was diagnosed in 2020. This whole idea of getting out and seeing people who I know from Twitter is amazing. And I just reached out. I think that was the biggest thing. I've just reached out and said, what can I do? And I started with some legislative advocacy because we can't get the research without the money. And we really need the Metastatic Breast Cancer Access to Care Act. But I'm a researcher and I want to do science. So I just found grass through Twitter. I found just a lot of stuff through Twitter. And I'm a, I'm a baby advocate, maybe a toddler advocate now. I'm toddling my way through different things and loving it all. And so grateful to everybody who's helped me. And then what would I have done differently from now? I think I would have reached out to real people sooner because I was learning a lot from Twitter and I was active there and was at conferences online and seeing these amazing people. And I'm like, maybe I should just talk to them. I'll bet they're nice. <laughs> Luckily they are. I think another big thing is I wouldn't change failures at all. I love hearing that from everybody and seeing the nods that are going on since this will be on a podcast, learning from them and getting up and brushing ourselves up and just going, because what do we have to lose? We're going to lose the biggest thing we have. So let's just do it. So I think that's the only thing I would, I would say. Thanks. Thank you, Amy. Yes. I wanted to definitely highlight the fact that trying to get into advocacy during the pandemic it's totally different than trying to do that prior to the pandemic, because as so many of you have mentioned, it's all about relationships. It's all about the people that you get to know. And it is harder to do that virtually. It's possible, but a whole lot harder to do that virtually. So thank you for highlighting that, Amy, as well as highlighting that you can be an advocate in something as simple as saying to somebody in the infusion room next to you, 
Hey, how you doing? All right, Rosemary, over to you. What got you started into advocacy or started into founding the PAC or however you want to take that question and what you might have done differently? While I was going through chemo, I had tons of help from everyone. And I met other ladies who didn't quite have the support system that I had. When you then take the next step and look to see what's available in Spanish for Spanish speakers as far as support, it has been such a challenge to find that. And in particular with metastatic breast cancer. There are so few programs and looking at national programs, I'm always sending the email, hey, have you started your Spanish program yet? For me, it's a matter of always being open and listening and learning to all these new things that are out there, all these programs that exist, and then making that call or sending that email asking, hey, do you have this in Spanish? (laughs) And these are small groups of women who don't necessarily have a voice. And so I'm finding myself being that voice more and more. I love having ended up in this space. I think it's a really important place for me to be, and I would not change how I got here by any means. There's a lot of cultural differences in who the person who's giving you the information is and what authority means and what you should question or not question. And so there's barriers to break down there when you're doing advocacy in Spanish to really empower these women to be their own advocate in their treatment. Because unfortunately, as a culture, we're taught not to question authority. It can be really tough. And I don't always like being that voice, but I'm realizing that there aren't many voices willing to step up yet. And I'm hoping more and more with time, especially as we see more of a need for Spanish-speaking advocates. Unfortunately, handing someone a flyer doesn't quite cut it sometimes. But if you send someone a video through WhatsApp, explaining things in about two minutes, I've found that's extremely effective. So we're actually working on a series now in Spanish that we can disseminate information a little easier that way about breast cancer. Thank you for that, Rosemary. All right, Leslie, over to you, my friend. How did you get into advocacy and would you have done something different? I think I speak for all of us that we probably got our start in advocacy by advocating for our own care, right? But thinking back, I too went to hear my voice. I actually went to the very first one in 2015. And my first conference was in 2014 at Living Beyond Breast Cancer. And I will say that I had a mini meltdown walking into that room when I saw women that were just like me and some were pulling oxygen tanks and I remember walking out of the ballroom and I went up to my room, fell on the bed, broke down and cried. And my roommate, Jill Cohen at the time, and she's no longer with us, basically scraped me off the bed and talked me to come back down and to go into the ballroom and to sit and to be there. And it ended up being just one of the most emotional but incredible experiences. And I knew I wanted to go back. And so when they offered the Hear My Voice training, I applied and thankfully I was able to get in. But then I was sitting in this room with all these phenomenal women and there wasn't a man at that time. I was in there with Jenny Grimes and Beth Caldwell. And that's when we did the very first die-in. And I looked at Jill and I'm like, because she went with me and I'm like, they want us to pretend we're dead on the floor. And I didn't know how I felt about that, to be honest. And when we had to write down what we thought would be our first step projects, I was like, 
I keep a blog for my family. So maybe I'll start with a blog. And that's exactly what I did was I went home and wrote up a bunch of interview questions and put it out on social media and said, do you want to tell your stories of what it means to live with metastatic breast cancer? And I called it Voices of NBC, and I did it for a year. And then I had someone else approach me that said, hey, I really would like to do a fundraiser for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I'm like, it's not going to be about early stage. It's going to be about stage four. And she was like, what is that? And so I was so green at the time as well. And I'm okay, let me tell you. I didn't know exactly what I was telling her yet. I hadn't really fully educated myself. Then we started up Climb for the Cure, and it was based off of my love for hiking and backpacking. And we started that in 2015 and did it for seven years in Southern California. That was my start. And after that was just meeting people and getting invited places. And would I change anything? I think I'm like the rest of you is that I wouldn't change a thing. It happened organically. It happened the way that I think that it needed to It wasn't forced. And I know that any one of us here would do anything that we possibly could to help a friend in need with NBC. And then at the same time, we sometimes forget about ourselves and then we feel it. So that is still a learning process for me. Thank you, Leslie. I love how you pointed out that it is still a learning process for everybody, even if you are quote-unquote experienced in advocacy, we're all still learning. Miranda, I did want to get to you as far as if you would have done anything differently in terms of how you began your advocacy. I was so desperate to find other young women, other Latinas anywhere that I tried everything as soon as I was able to. I went to conferences, walks, fundraisers, garage sales, whatever it was, wherever I could find anyone that had any relation to any breast cancer, I wanted to be there because I wanted to learn. I actually had three kind of experiences that led me into advocacy, but the major one that really propelled me was through an organization called CanCare here in Houston. So when I was getting my infusions in the hospital, I would have volunteers that would come to see me. And I knew that I wanted to do this for other people. So I went back into the hospital where I was treated. I like to joke that it was cognitive behavior therapy because the sounds and the smells. And so just going often, it became a place that I really was able to disconnect from my experience there and be more present for patients. One other thing that really stuck with me, a lot of times when you're at the hospital, they have these free wig centers and they're like, go pick a wig. And when I went to find a wig, there was nothing that was age appropriate or black. I had black hair. There was not one wig that would fit me. It was very disheartening. And I don't know if you want to call it God or the universe or whatever that is. The Instagram gods presented this nonprofit to me. Um, I reached out to this woman. The name of the nonprofit is Wig Out. And so we provide free wig kits to people who are diagnosed, men and women, any type of cancer. A lot of the advocacy world, I think, It's just going to events and meeting people and then networking and you connect with this person and they want you to volunteer here and then they want you to meet this person and it just grows from there very organically. Now I work for SHARE as part of the RMBC Life podcast after being a volunteer and 
just similar to what everyone else said, really, I wouldn't change anything. And I would encourage anyone who does want to do any kind of advocacy, just learn, soak up everything and anything you can. And don't be afraid to take that first step to go to a conference by yourself or reach out to someone online. Thank you for that. That is one of the things, Marina, that I've also found is just that people who are putting themselves out there as advocates are almost always willing to lend a helping hand to somebody else. At this point in the discussion, I want to include a conversation that I had with Kathy at Living Beyond Breast Cancer, aka LBBC, all about the Hear My Voice program, which several of our panelists have mentioned as a starting point to their advocacy. Here's Kathy. Thank you for inviting me, Abigail. I am Kathy Ormerod. I'm the Executive Vice President for Strategy and Mission at Living Beyond Breast Cancer. And that means I oversee all the programs and the marketing. And I've been with LBBC about 10 years. And one of my proudest achievements is starting the Hear My Voice program. Thank you, Kathy. So would you tell us why the Hear My Voice program was started? I was doing a lot of social listening in 2013 and 2014, and there was a lot of anger in the metastatic breast cancer community about not being included in the general early stage breast cancer community, not being heard, not being seen, being excluded, all really negative things that were very true. So I come from an advocacy background and I thought, let's try offering a program for the metastatic community. We found people were hungry to find their own voice, to contribute and to come together as a community. The core is really about teaching people who come to the program with their own set of expertise to look at the landscape of metastatic breast cancer and figure out where they want to be as an advocate. Are they a person who likes to do one-on-one communication in their local community? Do they want to take part in legislative advocacy? Are they writers or bloggers or where can they use their talents is, is basically where we start with people. And that has served us well over the years. We have tweaked the program, obviously, in the pandemic. We've had a commitment in the Hear My Voice class to diversity in many different ways, racially, ethnically, geographic, subtype, age. We have people, I think the next class is like 33 to 69. So we look at a number of items to to ensure that we have a diverse class. Income levels also. We do try to make advocacy activities available to anyone who wants to attend. At our metastatic conference, we always have an advocacy workshop and people are welcome to come to that. We are engaging with many of our peer sister organizations on a variety of advocacy activities. And we now have a spanking new website with different ways to communicate that. So we are trying to provide advocacy activities and really also just train a core group. And I know it's disappointing when people can't break through and I wish we could find a funder to extend it all. But at the moment, this is where we as an organization. 
So if there was somebody who is listening who hasn't been able to get into the Hear My Voice program, but still wants to engage with LBBC as a volunteer, get into areas of advocacy, what would be the path if someone isn't able to attend the program? I would encourage you to actually reach out to me or one of my staff people, and we will listen to you and see what area is of interest to you and try to connect you to others or other organizations. We do collaborate with many other of our nonprofit partners. So, you know, if we can't meet your need, perhaps another can. We have other volunteer activities throughout the year. The pandemic has kind of shaken up that model a little bit. So we're in the process of recreating that. We always have had volunteers across the country who work at tables or in health fairs or volunteer in in other ways. So reach out, let us know. We'd like to serve everyone, but again, with resources, (laughs) we can only do so many, but we want to include everybody. And I've gotten messages from various LBBC staff when there's somebody who is wanting to get into an area of advocacy that you guys know that I've done before. So you guys do lean on your alumni as well for connecting people, right? Absolutely. And so many of our alumni have gone on to continue their advocacy in really remarkable ways. And we're very proud of that. We find one of the big outcomes of the Hear My Voice program is that our alumni tell us that advocacy helps them make meaning out of this diagnosis. And anyone who has gone through our program is willing to talk to others and share how they've gotten where they are and be a resource. I would just add that, Abigail. I've met some of the best people I've ever worked with in my very long career through this program. It's been great. And now we'll go back to our panel discussion and begin to look at barriers to getting into advocacy. For this question, it's also the two-part question. One is, if somebody that looks like you, whether that's from a racial, cultural, gender, whatever perspective, if they were wanting to get into advocacy, other than contacting you, what is something that you would say to that person about what they could do to either surmount some of the challenges that you might have experienced because of who you are? Or just to not make the same mistakes that you did, although it sounds like everybody feels like mistakes are good. But in terms of a smoother path to advocacy, perhaps, than what you might have experienced, what would be your gems to pass along to somebody who looks like you? And Stephanie, you are first. First of all, I would say, look at yourself and decide what you think you want to do. Find out what you want to do. Then look around to see what you can find. If you don't step out of your comfort zone, you're not going to do yourself or anybody else any good. Because if you're comfortable, that's just like having the conversation with regarding clinical trials and talking to Black people with metastatic breast cancer. I am not here to make your ass comfortable, period. And if you're uncomfortable, my job is done. Thank you for reminding us, Stephanie, that a lot of times when you are advocating or attempting to advocate, that can rub people the wrong way. And I think a lot of people are scared of that, right? They begin to advocate or they begin to bring things up and it upsets people. 
What do you think, Stephanie, is a barrier for more Black women getting into advocacy? That's probably it. I did not know that race could play so much into advocacy until I ran into that. We come across as the angry Black woman. And I'm not going to say that's wrong sometimes because I can't be that angry Black woman if I need to be. But everybody expects us to be that way. Everybody expects me, the Black woman, they walk into the room, they see me sitting there, they think I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be non-compliant. I'll never complete a treatment plan. And I sure as hell probably don't understand a damn thing you're getting ready to say. So what you have to do is to prove them wrong. Unfortunately, I hate to say that, but it's true. And it's sad. Thank you, Stephanie. It's so important for people's feelings and how they are treated to be validated. I did not understand that as a middle-aged white person, that somebody who walks into an exam room with a different color, whatever that color is, a different gender, et cetera, that there are already so many preconceived notions before you even walk in the room. But I think that's not always acknowledged. And so our brothers and sisters who are in that situation often feel as though their experience isn't counted because no one else understands what it is to look like them and walk into treatment. Exactly. And that's true. They don't. They are seeing me at a snippet out of my day. You have no idea what I'm going home to. It's just like I said to San Antonio, you want me to eat good, but you ain't giving me no money. So I'm going to buy what I can afford to buy. And how important it is that doctors ask those questions, right? Ask those questions without the assumptions. Exactly. Help me help myself. Thank you, Stephanie. All right, Janice, over to you. If there was somebody who was wanting to get into research advocacy, which I know is your niche, what would you tell them to do? I think, first of all, step out of your comfort zone. What's holding you back? from just reaching out to someone that you know is in that space and has been in that space. And I remembered back to the 2018 conference that I went to at Living Beyond Breast Cancer and met a dear friend. Her name was Judy Erdahl. And a statement that she made made more impact on me than anything else I've ever done. And she said, it doesn't have to be big to be meaningful. And that is the one thing that I would tell people that are listening in, that I think that's really what's important. It really doesn't have to be big. And I've had a mantra for many years now. I always say that when I lay my head down on my pillow at night, if I know that I've helped one person, it's been a good day. And I really try to live by that. Thank you, Janice. Appreciate that perspective. All right, Rod, over to you. If there was another man who was looking to get into breast cancer advocacy, what would you tell him? Okay, Abigail, I think just listening to people here, I think the first thing you'd have to say to a person is be authentic, get the knowledge that you need, and actually think about the person's need. A lot of the time you can get talked to, but put yourself in in this person's place. It's a long game they're playing, but if the person is keen I think they can go anywhere. And I think we all probably started, as you said, Jazz, we weren't doing this before diagnosis, but now, however, X number of years later, everybody's a really great supporter of other patients and an advocate. And secondly, I'd say don't take no for an answer. Get your resilience levels up. Expect some knocks, but try and keep your sense of humor. 
Now, I know you said, Rod, that you didn't experience barriers in becoming an advocate, but do you think that men experience barriers or challenges that women don't when they want to advocate? I think the barriers are barriers that, that aren't really there. I think it's really up to the, if it's a guy that's wanting to advocate, just to, you know, I don't know, crash through or crash perhaps. But the barriers I don't think are with the patients. I think the barriers are institutional. Or I found there were barriers that were institutional and quickly learned that they could be knocked down because they don't have any basis. And I think institutions understand that and they pretty quickly jump on board. And look how much more voice is given to patients in just in recent years than towards a while ago. So I think we're all succeeding and crash through or crash. I like that. I also like the concept that we're standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us. There's a lot of people who have laid a whole lot of groundwork for the advocacy that we can all be doing now. All right, Amy, over to you. What would you tell somebody who is at the very beginning of their advocacy experience? So just to follow up on what you just said, like you were talking about all these people and now I'm sitting in a room virtually with all the people who I'm like, I can't believe I'm in the room with these people who have laid the groundwork for me to do the work and encourage me to do the work that I need to do. And it reminded me too of, of students, they come in first year biology students and they're like, how do you know that? Or how do I get there? And it just takes time and it takes practice and it takes failure. And then they go to grad school and they become doctors and whatever they want to do. It just takes time. So I think that's been really helpful just for me hearing from you all to remember that is true. I think resilience is really good too. And one of the things I would say is to reach out to, if you're interested in research advocacy, reach out to maybe a local university. If they have an advocate program, great, you're in. If they don't have an advocate program, you can be an annoying person who contacts the head of their grad school and says, hey, I would love to talk to your grad students in cancer about my experience. Maybe we can get something started here. And then the other thing I would say is just reach out, reach out to people. It's so great to have that motivation, to have the community to help you and stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Thank you, Amy. It's such a good reminder too that as patients, we can affect the future of medicine by talking to future doctors. Rosemary, over to you. What would you tell somebody who was thinking about getting into advocacy? I think the first thing I would ask them is, are you ready to share your story? Because there's nothing more powerful than that when it comes to advocating. All of our stories are so different and they all need to be heard. They all need to be told. So I, I would start there. I would say that within our culture, that's a real barrier is to get someone to share their story because we're very used to not discussing our problems, not discussing our issues. And I see it with the women in our program that it's so hard for them to speak openly about a diagnosis and about what their experience with this diagnosis is. But once they do, it's unbelievably empowering. And we were really fortunate to work with LBBC on their series of metastatic breast cancer. They reached out to us about seeing how many of our Spanish speakers would be interested in sharing their story. And I was like, I can try and see who would be willing. And it was a wonderful surprise to see how many of them were willing to share. And I was so proud of the two ladies from our program who actually ended up being highlighted in the series because those two women, when we first met, they wouldn't even say the word metastatic. That for me, like that was the most incredible moment. And I could not have been 
more proud of their work and how far they had come in this whole process. It was really amazing to see. So I would say, definitely, are you ready to share your story? Because that is the most impactful thing you can do. Thank you, Rosemary. Miranda, what about you? What would you tell somebody who looks like you, is similar to you, who wants to get into advocacy? I actually don't have a professional degree. And I was very embarrassed when I first started getting into advocacy because everyone around me had careers and master's degrees. And I got married very young and had children. So I didn't really have anything like that. It wasn't really encouraged when I was growing up. So that was a big hurdle. And I actually was asked very early on by someone to participate on this patient panel. And I told her, just full disclosure, I don't have a college degree. I feel like I need to tell you that. Do you need to know? And I don't remember the specific words that she said, but she made this comment to me that was basically along the lines of that there are people exactly like me out in the world and that the voice that I have is going to serve the people who are living with my background, with my education, my home life, my culture. And it just it really stuck with me. And I would tell anyone who wants to get into advocacy that there is one person in this world who is probably your twin in your career, in your family life, whatever that is. And that person is going to need someone like you to look to, to know that they are not alone. So just knowing that not having a degree, it didn't hinder me. It actually helped me to be able to get into some of the spaces I was able to get into. I would just encourage anyone to not let your own personal shit get in the way of what you really want to do, because there is always going to be someone that is going to be touched by your story. Thank you, Miranda, for pointing out that everyone's story and experience is important and is worthy of being included. All right, Leslie, what have you learned over the time that you've been in advocacy that would help them get started? So I think the first thing that I would say is I have to start with myself first. And I did what I called my life sabbatical, where I cut everything out so that I could first get a handle of what it meant to live with this diagnosis. Because I knew that if I didn't get a handle on it first for me, I was going to be no good for anybody else. And then I totally believe in mentorship. Jill Cohen became my very first mentor. And it wasn't as if she was mentoring me to tell me exactly what I should do or shouldn't be doing. It was just some place for me to go someone for me to talk to and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. And so when I was starting Project Life, I made a call out into social media and had friends post in social media, hey, my friend is thinking about starting up this organization. Is there anyone new to advocacy that would like to join her? And so that's where I met Jackie Siner and then Danielle Thurston, who has since passed away And I brought them up alongside of me and said, this is my idea. And we kind of walked through the process of what a project life would look like. And so I think that is a great way. And it's also a shameless plug that project life is always looking for volunteers. It's a great way to get your toes wet. You don't know what you don't know unless you start putting yourself out there, like everyone has said, and emailing people 
knock on doors, ask questions. Hey, can you grab some coffee over a virtual Zoom? Because I'm always willing to, because I know that I'm into calling out the gold that I see in people. And so when Amy here popped out into the scene and I met her at SABCS, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to find a place for her. I'm like, we're going to start a new column in our newsletter and Amy's going to write it. And so I'm always looking for those opportunities to bring in the newbies because they're so needed. I don't know when I'm going to expire and I don't want Project Life to disappear. I want it to continue on. If we can multiply ourselves, I think for those of us with a little bit more experience, I think bringing someone under our wings and mentoring them to a place where we can just be there, answer questions, listen. I think that is a really good thing to do. Thank you, Leslie. Would you talk a little bit about how you felt when that picture on social media was shared during the San Antonio conference and all the points of pain in the community? Yeah. So I have the picture. It's right up here. It's of me, Janice, Stephanie, and Abigail. And we're in the photo, like the photo booth where you dress up and stuff. And we did this, these photos and I put it on Twitter. There was a response about how it must be nice to be in the in-group. And quite frankly, I was like shocked. Like it really took me aback. And then when I shared it with Stephanie, Abigail, and Janice, they were like, what? And why would anybody feel that way? And so in a ways, my feelings were a little hurt because I was like, we're not cliquish. We're just a really tight-knit community. And the relationships that I have built in this community is because we have nurtured those relationships and we have each other's back and we support each other. And do all the relationships work out? No, they don't. But I know that I didn't just drop into that photo booth and Abigail and Stephanie and Janice were my friends. It was years before getting to know each other and building something together and collaborating and sharing. And so we don't want anybody to feel that this is an in-group, that everybody has a seat at the table, which they do. Everybody has a seat at the table. And it's okay if you don't see a spot for you to say, hey, scoot over because I deserve a seat at this table. You can be that assertive. Bring your own table too. I'll flip your table over and make my own table. Because your table might be better than the one I'm sitting at. Definitely. Yes, I think Leslie's point is well taken that there's plenty of room for everybody, even if you don't see that spot right away. I think everybody has talked about it being a process to figure out where you fit. And each one of us have noticed a point of pain or an issue in the community and have worked to address that. Yes, Miranda, did you have something that you'd like to talk about here? Just to piggyback off of what you ladies were saying earlier, I just wanted to say that I know a lot of times people on social media or wherever they see advocates at conferences or at dinners or events, and they see people smiling and taking pictures and you build community, you make relationships and it is fun, but it's work. It's hard. There's loss and you have to be all in to really make the most difference. But even with all the loss, there's so much beauty in connecting with other people who support you, who teach you that you can support and teach also. It's just, it's not for the 
weak at heart. Very true. Very true. So my word for all of this is purpose. Because at least for me, advocacy has given me a way to use my training, my experience, my gifts, et cetera, in a way that gives me purpose. And I think whenever you have something like MBC or a cancer diagnosis generally, that can oftentimes interfere with what we might have seen our purpose to be before the diagnosis. So I wanted to open it up to anybody who wants to share anything that we didn't talk about that you think is super important. The floor is open if anybody would like to share. Janice, yes, go ahead. One of the things that I have learned, and I've learned it the hard way, is that as an advocate, we see all of these opportunities and we want to do this. We want to do that. We want to get involved. Then we get over-involved. And then pretty soon you're involved in a lot of things and your plate gets full. It gets overfilled. And you reach a point, and I do this about once a year, as Leslie can attest, because I always reach out to her and say, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) And I literally just feel like I want to walk away. And I think one of the things that we always need to keep in mind as an advocate is that we have to care for ourselves first. And I think compassion fatigue is another thing. We have so much those of us who are engaged in peer support, which I think all of us are to a certain degree, it's hard. We take on other people's struggles and their emotions and so forth. And I think we do reach a point where sometimes we just feel overwhelmed. I think reaching out to someone, and Leslie talked about having a mentor, have that person that you can reach out to and say, hey, I am not in good shape right now. I need, I just need to either vent or I need some help trying to find balance. And I think balance can be very difficult to find, but it's important to find it. I would like to say this from Stephanie. I'm speaking truly just from Stephanie. Before you embark on starting a new nonprofit, do me one favor. Look around and see if you can find somebody that is doing exactly what you want to do. And if you find that person that is doing exactly what you want to do, don't do it. I feel that we are just intedated with nonprofits that are duplicating the same work, coming up with the same results in these silos and not sharing their work, their findings, their needs, their desires. We need everybody to work together obviously for the same purpose of finding a cure for metastatic breast cancer, we need to work all together. And just think if we all got together on the same page for at least one day, the work that we could accomplish, the things that could get done. So don't go out and start at something when there's already five or six of them to do. Look around and see what you can add to somebody else's. Maybe a different perspective. Thank you, Stephanie. It's so very important. We are so much stronger together, collaborating together rather than dividing the pie, so to speak. There's only so much money to go around in terms of funding organizations and if everybody's fighting over the same pot, there's only so much money to go around. So appreciate that reminder. Miranda, did you have something else to add? I want to say that I wish more early stagers realized the need to 
not be so disconnected from the NBC community. More early stagers need to realize that we need to put more efforts into advocating for the NBC community. I think like all these drugs that we have now, someone did a clinical trial so that I could take this. That was someone's last line of treatment. And if they didn't do it, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have these drugs. And I feel like we owe so much to the NBC community, but there's this whole disconnect. I know that if I did get a metastatic diagnosis, I have people, I know where to go. There's information. I wouldn't be struggling. I would already have a support system available. As you have heard from all these amazing advocates, people and relationships are at the heart of advocacy. Developing relationships and connecting with others is how each person got started. I hope you will stick with us for a few more minutes because we are going to hear from some of the advocates involved with MetaFiber. And then I'll have some closing thoughts as well as a call to action for each of you listening. We will now hear from Dan Kramer, a MetaFiber board member and the chair of the advocacy committee. Dan, some listeners may be surprised to hear that MetaFiber is involved with advocacy as well as fundraising for research. Would you talk a little more about that? Sure. MetaViver is a nonprofit that's dedicated to sustaining hope for those living with stage four metastatic breast cancer. And while the primary thing we do is directly fund research, we're also aware that the way to get the most money for research is through the federal government and through spending. And so our advocacy program is designed to get even more resources for metastatic breast cancer research. But it also expands our ability to have impact. The more people we get involved and the more people who contact their senators or members of Congress, the more pressure we can put on policymakers to increase their funding and support of research for metastatic breast cancer. And that's really what advocacy is. It's just telling our stories to our elected officials and asking them to support what we need. We do advocacy year round and it's super easy to get involved. All you have to do is sign up at our website. And the different things we do are we ask our advocates to respond to action alerts that we send and you just get those in your email. And when you get it, you can just click on the email and it will match you to your member of Congress. It will match you to your senator. And you can send a message to them asking them to support MetaViver's policy priorities. And then our signature event happens in the fall every year. And it's our stage four stampede, which is a great advocacy event that takes place both in Washington and virtually for people who can't travel. And that's the time where we all together meet with and contact our members of Congress and share our stories. And it's our biggest push of the year. So we do advocacy year round, but it really culminates in the stage four stampede. In terms of involvement, a person can simply participate, send messages to their Congress people, senators, show up to the meeting, share their story. But if somebody wanted to get more involved and be a state captain, are there particular states that you're looking for people in? Yeah, it's actually another great question. Our state captains are the people who help us organize the stampede. We provide them with a lot of training and support, and we're getting better at that all the time. We actually need state captains in every state because 
where we have more than one person, then we have a team of state captains and they support and help each other. So if you're interested in getting more involved as a state captain, uh, you can again go to the MetaViber website and just send an email to us saying interested in being a state captain and we will get back to you and sign you up for that. It's a little more involved than just being an advocate, but not a lot more involved. Thank you, Dan. And we have one of our state captains, Tammy, on the call as well. Tammy, which state are you a state captain for or have been? New Jersey. I've actually attended in person and virtual. So I did go to the Stampede in Washington for two years, pre-pandemic. And I will say it is quite an experience to actually be there in person. You really form connections with people in your state that are fighting for the same cause. You also just get to see a little bit more about the whole system between the House and the Senate and how things work and really feel a sense of purpose in sharing your story. We can all make a difference during the time that we are here. What other types of advocacy are you doing, Tammy, other than the stampede? So right now I'm serving as the campaign director for Light Up NBC. And on that night of October 13th for Metastatic Breast Cancer Awareness Day, there is just such a sense of, of hope and unity in the world when you see every single state in the United States shining in pink, teal, and green, standing in solidarity with the metastatic breast cancer community. So that's one of the goals of Light Up NBC, and you can volunteer. We have templates to send out to landmarks in your cities so that they could participate and be a part of this global movement. And you can simply go to the landing page on the MetaViver website, which is just metaviver.org forward slash lightupmbc to find out more information and to fill out our volunteer form. And there's a variety of things that people could do to support that overall initiative, right? So there's getting the landmarks lit up. I think you mentioned proclamations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Becoming a Light of NBC volunteer involves a variety of things, and we recognize that volunteering means different things for different people. So when people sign up to participate, they can choose if they want to light a landmark, if they want to secure a proclamation in their town, if they want to host a Light Up NBC fun run or walk to fundraise for MetaViver if they want to just create their individual story on our Light Up NBC website and establish connections, or they could secure photographers pro bono to photograph the landmarks on October 13th. They could help secure press or talent for the show Light Up NBC Live. So nobody needs to do everything. You can just pick and choose what feels most meaningful to you. And Abigail, in terms of the proclamations, we have a template that is designed to showcase all of the statistics that people might not be aware of surrounding the facts around metastatic breast cancer. And people can email this proclamation template to their town council, their mayor, even their governor. We had a lot of success last year with at least 24 different proclamations. And this gives the volunteer an opportunity to get to know the leadership of their town. 
And once that happens and those connections are made, you never know what type of fundraisers or different things can come out of that. For example, at some of the Light Up NBC fun runs that we're doing, which have become a lot of walks as well, we ask someone from the town council or the mayor of the town to come to the run and read the proclamation there. And usually once the town council or the mayor comes, perhaps certain members of the press come too. And all of a sudden, you can really raise a lot of awareness and educate the public about the critical need for metastatic breast cancer research. And we believe that once people are aware, then people will understand why so much funding is needed for stage four in particular. So MetaViber funds various research projects. And how many of those research projects have been funded through Light Up MBC? That's a great question. Many people may know Laura Inahara is the founder. She founded Light Up MBC in memory of her best friend, Jessica Moore. And in 2019, there were quite a few landmarks that lit, but people weren't really sure exactly why they were lighting. And it raised about $5,000. Last year, I'm proud to say we raised over $500,000. So we were able to fund two translational grants at $250,000 each. We funded grants every year, but I think it was amazing that we hit $500,000. So of course, now I'd love to hit a million dollars next year. Thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about MetaViber and all of the advocacy efforts there. I want to end our discussion with a question for each of you, which is, What is the why behind your participation in advocacy? And Dan, we'll start with you. Because it matters and it works. And it's the only way we're going to increase significantly funding for metastatic breast cancer research. And for my wife, Cassie, and for everybody else who has this disease, that's my why. And the last thing I'll say is the only thing that's required to do advocacy is our stories. That's the only experience we need. That's all we have to share is our story. And they're very powerful. How about you, Tammy? What's your why? I would say my why is is my children. Right now, they're 10 and 13. And of course, I just want to see all the milestones in their lives and to make a difference that future generations don't have to see death from breast cancer. Thank you, Dan and Tammy, for sharing about the advocacy efforts at MetaViber. All of the links that were referenced during our discussion will be in the show notes, as well as email addresses for Dan and Tammy for anybody who would like to get more information about anything that we discussed. Conception for this podcast began with pain. With people in the NBC community who want to be advocates, but don't know where to start. And now you've heard from a variety of people about their advocacy experiences, as well as from Living Beyond Breast Cancer and MetaViber. But as with so many subjects, the next question probably is, well, now what? I want to leave each of you with some concrete action items, whether you want to get into advocacy, are already involved with advocacy, or are feeling some burnout or compassion fatigue as an advocate. First, begin with who you are. 
The guests shared various ways that they have gotten into advocacy, and maybe you heard an idea that resonates with you. We are each wired so very differently and fit differently. So know yourself first. Second, find someone who is doing the kind of advocacy you want to do and pick their brains. Stalk them on social media. Watch what others are doing. Each of the panelists have agreed to let me put their email addresses in the show notes, and they've promised to respond. We all need help, and these experienced advocates have promised to help. Third, try something. Whether you're like Stephanie and you want to jump in with your entire body, or if you want to stick your toes in to see what works best, every experience begins with that first step. Take one step, however small, and see what happens. Fourth, consider applying to an advocacy training program. I've included links to programs that I researched as part of this episode in the show notes. And I'd like to add one more. This summer, Leslie and I will be debuting Project Life's Advocacy Bootcamp. The bootcamp is designed for those people who are not yet in their advocacy niche. And after the training, we will be connecting each participant with an advocacy mentor as well as connecting each participant with organizations that fit their interests. Registration for this program will be opening as of the time of this podcast, and we welcome you to consider applying at projectlifembc.com. Fifth, if you are already involved with advocacy, find somebody to mentor. We all need to be thinking long-term about advocacy and replacing ourselves is key to longevity of the amazing projects and programs that MBC advocates are creating all the time. We truly know what is best for our own community, but we need to think about long-term. Sixth and finally, take care of yourself. Burnout, compassion fatigue are issues that we all grapple with. There is so much more work to be done than people to do it. Our community gets smaller all the time. And we need to each take care of our energy and be sure that we are focused as much as we can be in the time that we have remaining. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and are leaving with some concrete takeaways. My hope in suggesting this topic to the team at RMBC Life was that the pain in the community could be addressed, that perhaps solutions could be found, and that we continue this conversation. Please be sure to check out the other amazing episodes this season and the previous seasons, including my favorites, which are the Remembrance episodes that drops each October. Feedback is always appreciated. I really appreciate everyone at our NBC Life for giving me this opportunity and for all the support. This episode was produced by me, Abigail Johnston. Original music and sound design by associate producer Connor. This episode would not have seen the light of day without assistance from Miranda Gonzalez, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, and my partner in crime, Leslie Glenn at Project Life. The executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Share Cancer Support. A special thanks to all the guests of this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Check out the blog and full episode notes at ourmbclife.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Life. Until next time, friends.